Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Dyer and welcome to Colorado Inside Out. This week has felt like July, hot, windy and storms with lightning and with that we've seen wildfires in Grand County, Garfield County, Teller and Gunnison counties, just to name a few. We wish our firefighting crews the best as we come to realize that Colorado's really brief break from being in a drought is over as we are nearing the end of another month. It is Friday, July 28th, and we have a lot to talk about this week, so let me introduce you to our panel. We have Patty Calhoun, founder and editor of Westward, Krista Kafer, columnist with the Denver Post, and Alton Dillard, a community and media relations consultant after his many years with Denver, the city of Denver as an election spokesperson. And we should mention our colleague, George Brockler, who was supposed to be with us, couldn't be because he was called to duty by the Colorado National Guard. So so we miss him this week, but we also thank him and all the others who serve our country. We do have a smaller group tonight, but there is a lot to get to. Just as the formal emergency declaration went into effect in the city of Denver, under new mayor Mike Johnson, a report came out that shows a 30% increase in the amount of people experiencing homelessness compared to last year. Patty, this puts an even bigger exclamation point on what Mayor Johnson wants to accomplish. Well, and most important thing, that's the annual point-in-time survey that is done every January, and it showed that, yes, homelessness is up in Denver, but it is up much more in the surrounding areas. So that's an important thing to notice. This is not just a city of Denver problem. It's a metro-wide problem. It goes across the state. But Mike Johnston made it the centerpiece of his campaign, which is why people are going to be very critical of what he's doing right now to get things started. One of the issues has come up uh, is, will sweeps continue, or as it's now called, decommissioning the street camps? In order to decommission, you have to have commissioned, and no one has commissioned street camps, even though urban camping is banned by the two 2012 ordinance that Michael Hancock signed in, street camps have never technically been legal. But sweeps have been illegal unless there is no place for people to go. So if there are shelters, you could technically sweep. That was the federal ruling years ago. Now, Michael Johnston, the big difference with the decommissioning is he says he will have places for them to go. The question becomes what happens to the people who choose not to go. That's just one of the big issues. We're hearing just how tough it is in the neighborhoods. There was a, a meeting here on Tuesday night, Curtis Park. You can tell people are fed up. It is just the stickiest problem. It's going to be very hard to solve, and it's not just Denver. No, it's not. Krista? Not just Denver. And I think Denver is sort of uh, going the way of San Francisco, where we have sort of permanent encampments that get larger and larger. And let's be honest. Yeah, there are people in that group that are uh, unable to afford rent, who are hardworking, working full-time, and are just uh, struggling in some way. But most of those people have either mental illness issues or are on drugs and alcohol. And if you have a policy in place that enables that, where you've got people allowed to panhandle, you've got people dropping off meals three times a day, a lot of these folks have absolutely no incentive to get help. In fact, uh, if you talk to anyone who runs a large shelter, they're going to say, don't give money to these folks. Um, let, uh, don't enable a lifestyle you wouldn't worse, you wouldn't like, wor you know, want for your worst enemy. Um, instead, we need to get these people into recovery. We need to get them into a system where they're, they're working towards sobriety, working towards getting a job, and then also working towards getting some housing. My, my 
concern with the housing first is that you may take a group of people who have no desire to get sober, no desire to work, and put them into a taxpayer-supported housing unit. And in some of those cases, people will simply die behind closed doors. I mean, you get them out of public view, but they are no better off than they were before. And I think you have to ask yourself, is that fair to them? Also, is it fair to the taxpayer? to consistently give free stuff to people who have no desire to make any kinds of changes in their life. Alton, what are your thoughts 10 days in or so? Yeah, my uh, thoughts are a couple of things. One, I agree with a lot of your points because, you know, even though the mayor of Denver and Denver's offices are nonpartisan, I'm seeing the Democratic playbook being played right here, where you try to play everything down the center and provide soft landings for all. And people have to remember that Johnston's opponent ran essentially on a platform of scooping up people who would not accept help. That would have been a non-starter years ago. So that proves that people are tired. And see, I also like the fact that we do some segmentation here. So people use the term homeless as an umbrella. And that's why I'm such a Kathy Alderman fan, because she always cautions against that. She's with the Colorado Commission on Homelessness. And she always cautions against doing that because there are people experiencing mental health issues. There are people experiencing drug abuse and alcohol issues. But one thing to keep in mind with the whole tent thing is remember this goes all the way back to Occupy Denver. Occupy Denver and then the unsheltered homeless kind of paired up. And that's where you started seeing the encampments in Civic Center and the ones surrounding the governor's mansion in particular. I've been to REI enough that I know what a $600 tent looks like. So there was some crossover in that audience. So it's going to be interesting to see if the Johnston administration listens to both sides but understands that A, folks are tired, and B, that they also have to remember using 16th Street Mall as an example. The 16th Street Mall was turning into the zombie apocalypse long before COVID. We cannot keep saying that's COVID related, that's COVID related. We have to get this city back to where it can be enjoyed by everybody. Let's help the people who need the help. Well, to get back to what you were saying, the Colorado Coalition on the Homeless, where Kathy Elderman is, will be involved with the city. And it's been the major prong in a lot of the city's work. So Johnston has said he's going to work with four different agencies, probably. The only one we had spoken with is Colorado Coalition on the Homeless, so we know they will be involved. And he's doing four different kinds of housing. He's looking at it. And he'll be pushing for services, too, Krista. So we know that it's not just going to be a free ride. The question, and it's the hardest question, is how do you get people people off the streets who don't want to get off the streets. We're not talking about people who necessarily want a free room. They don't want to get off the streets at all. And that's going to be where, how do you get them help? How do you get them to recognize they need help? That's going to be Denver's biggest challenge. And it's not just Denver. If you drive along 225, you see encampments in Aurora. You see them all over the metro area. They're just not as big. And, and you're not so walking by. That's what frustrates me, is that they get into that. We have some natural areas in Littleton where there's wildlife, and they get in there and they leave tons and tons of trash. You know, we were talking about the different agencies. Well, during the Hancock administration, there were a host of agencies that were helping out and had come together and formed a homeless coalition and were working on it. So how is this going to be different from what was going on then? 
Well, I think they're going to focus on a few, but they will certainly work with almost anybody. Mm. Obviously, the Gary Foundation is going to be involved because that's where Michael Johnston had been before. He's brought some of the people in. He's got nine of his ten appointees who are going to be working on the homelessness plan. Cole Chandler, who was Tiny Villages and mm. got that off the ground and who came over from the state where he had a job. So they've got people who understand all the possibilities. It's just which ones work, and basically, you've got to mix and match. And the you cannot focus on just one thing. And the public wants to know when. when right away. Yeah, I mean, they want to know way. when they can walk down 14th Street. Yes. They want to know when they can walk down 20th. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you all. Um, Aurora voters will be deciding in November whether to shift the way that their city has been run from having the city council and city manager kind of in charge every day to having the mayor making all of the executive decisions. Once all the signatures were gathered, which grants this idea to move onto the ballot, we heard from one of the supporters who was quiet for quite a bit, Krista. I can understand why Mayor Mike Kaufman would like the proposal, um, because it would give him more executive authority. Right now, his job is somewhat ceremonial. I mean, he meets with people around the city, he's able to break a, a tie vote, but it would give him the authority. And it would put Aurora more in line with Denver, Colorado Springs, Pueblo. Colorado's larger cities typically do have this model of having a strong mayor executive. Um, but other cities have uh, the, the city manager um, system where the council picks a city manager and that is that person is basically the executive that is doing all of the things that the, that the council is voting for. So I, I can see that there's advantages in both systems. So I guess it really just comes down to whatever the, the voters decide. Is there an advantage to how a city is run? You worked for so long with the Hancock administration before that too, with Denver being a mayor's strong city. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that I've been really keeping an eye on as far as Aurora goes is two things. Because one, remember that Kaufman, whatever happens, going to serve one more term. So he's setting up for whatever happens down the road as far as the governance structure. A city the size of Aurora that really does not like being considered as Denver's you know, little sister, I think probably use a strong mayor form of government. But the thing that concerns me is the petitioning process. Colorado is one of maybe, I'm going to say like 28 or 30 states that even allows a citizen petition initiative. Everything else happens through the legislative body. And this is no shade on petition gatherers. They're all allowed to make a living. But if you've ever met anyone who is a professional petition gatherer, they are essentially they're like carnies. They're, they're itinerants. They will travel the country issue to issue, and there has been an issue about, okay, now we've talked about single subject here, and so all the news reports are like, people are saying, hey, this only had to do with term limits. And then there's that little bitty section at the bottom about going strong mayor. So were people honest about what they were having people sign, but I'm always gonna put that on the voters. I'm not gonna just sign a petition without reading top to bottom what it's about. We know Pueblo's had some problems with the strong mayor system, but one of the things about the strong mayor is it's accountability. So when you're the, t when you're the resident, you're voting for maybe a couple council people in Denver at large and your own representative, but if it was not a strong mayor system, you wouldn't be voting for the mayor. And at least with a strong vote, a strong mayor system, there is more accountability from the citizens. If Aurora does go to the strong mayor uh, setup, it would give the Colorado GOP a larger presence in the Denver metro area after recent losses by Republican candidates. 
Speaking of Colorado Republicans having future opportunities in office, let's talk about an idea floating around the state GOP, which would really cut back on unaffiliated voters being able to vote in primaries. Well, unaffiliated voters by far have the plurality in the state of Colorado. And so because of the dysfunction, the disorganization within the state GOP, they're essentially grasping at straws. So there's a couple of things when that legislation passed that allowed unaffiliated to participate in primaries. Both sides were party to that. This was not anything that was just foist on one party by another. And the other component of that is Colorado, even though people want to say it's an open primary because of your ability to choose one or the other, that's actually a closed primary. Unaffiliated voters get the ballot of both parties, but they can only return and vote one. So if you send them both back, that cancels out your vote. And so the other part of that legislation that also caused a lot of heartburn was, yes, your vote itself is always private but which primary you participate in is public record. And so there were people in the media who were freaking out, there were DAs, there were judges, there were attorneys saying, okay, well, based on the fact that I participated in this particular primary, I'm either gonna be a conservative whack job or a liberal whack job because of how I leaned you know, in that particular thing. That's gonna cause credibility issues as I do my job on the bench or in media. So I think that they need to continue to let everybody participate participate. This is why we're a representative democracy. Patty. Well, I agree because essentially anyone can run. You can have a third party candidate. But the odds are that it's going to be one of the two major party candidates. Everyone's paying for the election. It is part of our state, local governments. So why not let the unaffiliated, who are more than a third of the voters in Colorado, decide to pick a primary? I hadn't really even thought about the, because your voter registration is public, but on the which go one you go for in the primary, hadn't really thought about that. If you're so nervous, then just don't tell people which part, don't vote in the primary. But I think it's critical that we be able to have more choice in who we will see on that ultimate ballot. And that's that's very important, especially right now with the Republicans who are trying to jerry-rig this, and it's only some Republicans, but it's the ones currently in power in the party, jerry-rig it so that they're gonna make they're gonna have the fix be in so that their whack jobs are the ones that make the ballot. And I'm sure Krista will have more to say about oh, that. Yes, Krista, I know I've been wanting to talk about it. You wrote about it. Yes, just a little bit. Um, so let's describe the Colorado GOP as a I'm gonna go with cluster. Um, and it is, we've got a, a, a nut job at the top and some other crazy folks, and they have decided that if they could just get rid of the primary, if, if the, uh, you know, the vast majority of, I guess, uh, not only unaffiliated voters, but most Republicans do not attend caucuses either. So by eliminating the primary, you get rid of both the unaffiliated and also the mainstream Republicans, and only those who go to caucus will be able to, uh, to actually determine who the candidates are. So take the most, uh, most passionate individuals, some of whom are also the most deluded, uh, Trump types, and have them decide who the candidates are. We're not going to get the kinds of mainstream candidates who do have a chance, not every election, but I, I do believe that kind of like Maryland and Massachusetts, a blue state does periodically pick a good, strong Republican with broad appeal over usually a damaged Democrat. In this case, though, we're going to have a handful of, of, of mixed nuts deciding 
on certain candidates, those candidates are going to be crazy, kind of like Dave, let's go, Brandon, Williams, and other folks. And, and then you're going to have normal Republicans just sort of sitting it out. So you want to go from a minority party to a minuscule minority? That's what they're aiming for. And then there's a kind of a worse aspect of this in that what they want to try to do at the next GOP meeting is change the rules so that anyone who doesn't show up for that meeting, their votes will be considered in the affirmative yes. to make this change to get rid of the primary and just have the caucus. A caucus system is a museum piece and a relic. Amen. We actually had a visit from one of the members of the Federal Elections Assistance Commission came to Denver. He's like, let me see if I have this straight. You all still sit around in high school lunchrooms and elementary classrooms and do a show of hands as part of your democratic process. I have to come see this in person. And he flew here from Washington, D.C. to witness it. And we, to be fair, we took him to both sides. And the Republicans, due to their small numbers, they just expected people to know their last name. The Democrats wanted people to know what precinct they were in, and you should have seen the lines. Mm. <laughs> All right, just weeks to go before it will be back to school time. And then we're also seeing what it's like to be a member of the Denver Public School Board. And I know, Patty, you want to talk about this video that was released um, that really did not show a good picture, a good scene after the East High School oh, shooting. The dysfunction was so frightening, and no one came off looking good in that. Certainly not the overall DPS board that fought release it. Good for the media outlets that sued to get access, saying this should have been an open meeting. When it was finally released, we found out that the school superintendent actually did want to go into executive session and close the doors on things that technically should ne should always been, have been open to the light of day. How people played games, went back and forth. It was just an appalling look at the school board. And we're seeing now what is going on with DPS. You've got the new school choice, the school choice in, and East High is way down. You know, normally has a big waiting list. I know you know that. Waiting list is way down. McAuliffe, no waiting list at all. They fired the principal, the DPS. That didn't come up in the meeting that we finally see, saw released. But the principal talked on Nine News, and that looks like it was part of his firing. He only talked about his concerns about school safety. He did not violate privacy. But there are things the DPS is definitely going to be held accountable for. And, you know, parents are getting ready to send their kids back and really don't know what's going on. It is not an easy situation, but there needs to be complete transparency. The board needs to discuss it openly um, and, and understand the public's concerns. They are sending the most precious person in their life, their precious children, to this school. So they, need, they, they definitely deserve um, the most transparent board possible and the best policy possible that helps the most amount of kids and does not compromise safety while still providing an opportunity for a few of these kids that are kind of on the cusp. Mm. And my thoughts on that are the 1% don't get to affect the 99%. Because, yes, there are kids that make bad decisions, but I'm always going to make a differentiation between someone boosting a classmate's iPhone or stealing a cheeseburger from the cafeteria with someone who has to be patted down for weapons. If you, there are certain charges or suspected charges or whatever that can be discussed, but if you are suspected of having a weapon, at some juncture you had a weapon. And see, one of the things also, back to the uh, McAuliffe situation, is he, the principal was again just talking about his concern about having untrained doing the pat down. 
I attended the press conference where Dean Mason, who was one of the victims of the East High shooting, spoke. And he said that what happened was he was coming to the aid of another dean who the kid had sort of uh, taken advantage of in the room when they were tussling. Dean Mason at least has, he used to be with the Bureau of Prisons and he's ex-military. So he's got probably a different way to go hand to hand with somebody. But you cannot have a situation where 1%, and I'm not saying throw them out in the streets, but again, they have to be in a setting where people are trained to deal with trauma, trained to deal with if there's substance abuse or mental health issues or issues in the home. That is very specific. The deans are supposed to be watching the doors at East High School that day. That's outside their swim lane. Okay, all right, can we talk about something else? I saw a headline the other day that said there is a new killer in Colorado, an animal killer. It's not a bear, it's not a coyote, they're the mosquitoes. Yes, last year 20 people died in Colorado because of West Nile virus, so, uh, and already we have our first case. This is a problem this year, you guys. We've all felt the mosquitoes and it's because of our weather. I'm a cyclist, so one of the things that I do is I try to make sure I'm always out as early in the morning as possible. And in the evening, if people are gonna be outside, you have to have the citronella candles going. You have to go through the whole nine yards. I've also gone on safari in Africa where because of concerns about malaria, you're running around in weather like we're experiencing in Denver today, 98 degrees, 50, 60% humidity, with your legs and arms covered, but it's a worthy precaution. And it kills more people, mosquitoes kill more people worldwide than any other animal. I know we always want to think like, oh, it's gotta be sharks or you know, oh, really? lions, but between malaria, the big killer, but then also dengue fever, you've mm -hmm. got Zika, um, and spraying ultimately is not the best way to go about it because it does kill a lot of beneficial insects. It also, if you think about mosquitoes, they are food for bats and different birds. So what I think is really exciting about the, the future, and when, I, when you brought up this question, I was like, cool, I get to nerd out, uh -oh. is that uh, they're now looking at, there are hundreds of, of species of mosquitoes, but only a handful carry these different diseases, malaria, dengue fever, and in our case, West Nile virus. Um, but they're looking at some genetic tricks of being able to basically wipe out certain types of mosquitoes that carry these diseases while allowing other mosquitoes to exist uh, that are such, you know, food for, not only, and they, you know, the male mosquitoes pollinate, like they, they do have some benefits. I don't want to be speaking up for mosquitoes, but they are food for bats and birds and we don't want to take that away. Speaking as a child of the Midwest, I could have lived a long time without the feeling of mosquito bites again. And it seems really unjust since we're back in a drought situation, but we are still itching. <laughs> I heard of a hack. I heard someone tell me bubble machines. Put a bubble machine on your deck and it scares them away. They don't come near you. Really? So hmm. run on an Amazon bubble machine. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about the highs and the lows of the week now that we've gotten rid of the mosquito topic. Let's start with the low and Patty. You know, no matter how you feel about immigration and whether or not we should have a wall, I think we can all agree you should not rip off people. And we just saw Tim Shea of Castle Rock, Colorado, get sentenced to over five years as part of the We Build the Wall scam that Steve Bannon was a part of. Just the most cynical, ridiculous action. And they've all been sentenced except for Steve Bannon now. He's got a federal pardon, but he's going to be tried in New York. Mm -hmm. Just uh, saw a report today by the Colorado Sun that the abortion rate in Colorado, it's, been like, it's gone up like 500 percent 
We've become a destination state. We allow abortion up until birth, and so we're getting a lot of people coming into the state as a kind of uh, death tourism. And I think if this is going to be the case, maybe we ought to adopt a, a law like in Indiana where, at least in Indiana, the babies have to be buried. Um, when I read that statistic, I thought, you know, where are, where are all these babies buried? They're not. They end up in medical waste dumps. So I think there's, if we're going to have this tragedy, at least have some dignity. Ooh, that's heavy. Mine's going to be a little lighter, and this is certainly not on the uh, Johnston team. They've only been in place for uh, two weeks. The whole city's a cone zone. You cannot get anywhere. And my question is, how can you be in a perpetual cone zone mode and you don't see any improvements? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right. Broadway, Lincoln, Welton, everywhere you go, yep. it is just bananas. And I understand, you know, we have winters and it's seasonal and all that, but my goodness, I'm looking forward to some of these projects being completed and just being able to get down three lanes once sometime this summer. That's all I'm asking. Yeah, South Broadway is tough, really tough. Um, something good, Patty, please. When you're going down Broadway, stop at History Colorado on August 1st, celebrate Colorado Day, and look at John Fielder's photographs, which he has donated to the state of Colorado. Incredible act of generosity and a great love of the state. Mm. Theater Works. This is the, the play troupe that is that's affiliated with University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. They do Shakespeare every year. I saw Taming of the Shrew last night. I've seen Pericles, um, I, I, was it, yeah, of Pericles of Athens um, earlier this summer. They're fantastic. I think they're kind of in the shadow of Boulder, which has a more famous Shakespeare festival. But if you have a chance to see anything at Theater Works, they're just, they're, they're just doing such a great job. Oh, good. Thanks for the tip. It's live music season. Put on your deet and get out and enjoy live music. <laughs> Everything from the Winter Park Jazz Festival to the fact that most of Denver and Colorado's master plan communities now have little amphitheaters yeah. in them. There's just so many ways to get outdoors, be with your neighbors, and see all genre of music. You have to take advantage. Great, of great suggestion. My positive is our women's soccer team, and specifically our Colorado players, midfielder and captain Lindsey Horan of Golden, yeah. And forward Sophia Smith of Windsor in the team's first round game. Sophia was just called up to the team and she scored two goals in that first game against Vietnam. And then huge hats off to Lindsay Horan, who got really ticked off <laughs> on Wednesday night's game against the Netherlands and came right around, hit a header right into the goal. So we were 1 1 with that. So, oh, man, those girls from Colorado. And to see their parents in the stands, we're so happy for them. <laughs> Our Colorado girls are shining, and we are proud of them. And we hope that you have a winning week as well. Thank you for watching or for listening if you have us on your podcast. I'm Kyle Dyer. I will see you next week, or should I say next month, here on PBS 12. <laughs>